You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here to talk to you. Uh, basically, I'm going to proceed in, uh, I think it's either three or four sections, I forget but it won't be more than that. Uh, and it will be pretty straightforward. Most of what I'm going to be talking about is actually a critique of a certain type of uh, effort to create development, and that is state-led development. Uh, and so let me get right into this and start what, right off the bat with what's development, which we should understand before we uh, talk about the political economy of development. And I'm only going to spend a few moments on this because you already know it. Uh, Professor Kirzner talked about this last night. And really, development ultimately is... Uh, the ability of individuals to figure out how to utilize scarce resources in a manner that generates things that people value. And of course, when economists talk about uh, wealth creation or wealth in general, I should say, it refers to both uh, physical or material items as well as non-material items, things, things that people value. That's wealth. More is preferred to less, uh, and that's really the gist of it. I'm going to come back to this in, 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 in more detail later on, but really it's, it's at the core of this is what Professor Kirzner is talking about in terms of the market process. Uh, that is the discovery process, which is grounded in economic calculation, which is ultimately grounded in private property rights, uh, which then allows economic actors to utilize uh, market-generated prices and profit loss to figure out how to use scarce resources. And so uh, here's the question that uh, is most common when people talk about this. It's the one that... Uh, I get the most often when I discuss these things, and I'm sure that uh, if you have discussed these things, you get it as well, which is, uh, what must we do to end suffering or to create development? Uh, and to give away my punchline right off the bat, uh, we must do nothing. That's what we must do, uh, because there is no we. Uh, and so uh, that's what I'm going to be coming to at the end. And hopefully I'm able to prevent, uh, present a convincing argument of why that's the case. And so what I want to talk about, as I mentioned, is state-led development. Uh, that's going to be my focus for the rest of this, our time together. And really, state-led development uh, emerged in the uh, period following the World Wars. And the notion of state-led development is the view that nation-states are at the core of pretty much everything. They are, they are at the core of order in the world, uh, and that... Nation-states, that is the governments that oversee nation-states, must act either independently or in conjunction with other nation-states in order to create development, both in their own countries but also in other countries as well. The standard line of argument, what I, what I mean by that is, at the core of modern development economics is the idea that absent some kind of external force, namely governments, that there are significant portions of the global population that will remain entrapped in poverty. In other words, there's no way for them to get out absent some kind of collective effort undertaken by government. Now, in order to understand the rise of modern development economics, there's a couple things you need to understand. And I use the term here, modern, to contrast it with, let's say, Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. So that's one view of economic development. Let's look at the woolen coat. How does that get made? Let's look at the pin factory. Why is it structured that way? Those are all explorations into economic development. If you go back to my initial slide of development being the study of or the 
use of scarce resources and the study of how people use scarce resources and allocate and reallocate them to their higher value use, uh, Smith was clearly engaged in development economics. That's not how we think about development economics today. Any of you who have ever taken development economics or opened uh, a development economic textbook will quickly realize it's just another macro class. It's growth theory, uh, where a very complex world is simplified down into uh, a few key variables. Uh, a variety of empirical tests are typically taken using highly aggregated data to approximate those variables, oftentimes to calculate uh, what is needed, often in terms of saving, investment, or something along those lines in order to generate the desired level of uh, growth. It's very different than Smith's approach. Several things happened, though, between the World Wars and then up into the 60s and 70s that led to the emergence of what today we call development economics. Uh, the first was the Great Depression, and uh, the Great Depression called into question the feasibility of capitalism as a mechanism for organizing economic activity, but more importantly for generating widespread and sustainable growth. Combined with that, you had forced industrialization in the Soviet Union. In other words, you had attempts to centrally plan development. And as most of you probably know, and for those who don't, I'll just briefly mention this, uh, of course, many economists, many famous economists were tricked uh, by the Soviet Union. Uh, and they weren't really tricked by the Soviet Union. They were tricked by the straitjacket they were wearing of aggregate statistics. Uh, and uh, they saw that the Soviets' GDP was increasing, or reported GDP. And many argued that uh, the Soviet Union would outstrip uh, the United States. Uh, that is, that central planning uh, would uh, generate higher levels of growth than uh, capitalism uh, while overcoming many of the ills of capitalism. Of course, combined with that, you, I mentioned GDP, is this idea of national income accounting. National income accounting are efforts to come up with basic measures of well-being or growth uh, in very simple uh, aggregate variables. Uh, and of course, these things persist to this very day, the use of them. In fact, they're at the core of development economics uh, because you can't uh, centrally plan development without looking at how countries are doing uh, and then making uh, claims about what needs to be done to generate the desired uh, level or growth in whatever aggregate variable we're talking about. And then the final factor, and by the way, these are not mutually exclusive, they, are all, they all interact, uh, is decolonization. So what did you have? Uh, you had a group of mainly Westerners, white Westerners, uh, drawing up lines, borders of countries around the world, uh, jamming people together uh, within those borders and uh, creating states. So you combine some white man's guilt with national income accounting, and we can say we're wealthy and they're not. So we need to do something to help them, right? Which of course is very paternalistic in its setup. When you think that way, I'm gonna come back to that later. And notice an interesting thing here, which is a common mistake people make about development. <clears throat> The way people talk about development is it's a distributional issue. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's the wealthy Westerners and there's the poor others, right? And the wealthy Westerners have some kind of obligation or duty to help the others. The, what, what I want to emphasize development consisting of, that first slide, and what I'll talk more about in a few moments, is not development as the slicing of a fixed pie, but rather production. It's an issue of production, which is why are some societies able to produce things that people value and others are not. That's really what this comes down to at the end of the day. And so what's state-led development? We have this state-centric view. 
States have to get stuff done. They have the resources, they have the expertise, and they have the political will to help people. We have the relevant data. We have national income accounting. I can tell what societies are poor and which aren't, so I know what I need to do. I can measure savings rates. I can measure investment and so on. So I can fine-tune economic systems to get the outcome I want. That's really what's at the core of state-led development. And there's three broad categories of policies. There's industrial policy, there's foreign aid, and there's military-led nation building. All these things are intertwined. The emphasis on these things in different settings varies. That is, different societies emphasize different parts of this. And I'm going to talk about each of these in turn. Uh, industrial policy is mainly inward looking. That is, a government creates a policy that influences the citizens that live within that country. The other two are external. That is, some external government intervenes in another society uh, to help them develop or to create development. And so I want to spend some time talking about these. Now, notice something. If you, if, again, if you've taken a course in development economics, you probably talked about the first two. You probably talked about industrial policy. Uh, and you probably talked about foreign aid. You probably didn't talk about the military. Uh, but this is a huge mistake, as I'm going to make hopefully clear in a few moments, which is uh, the military, especially the U.S. military, is at the core of development economics in many more ways than most people care to realize. And so you can't have these discussions without a focus of milita the military and more specifically the militarization of foreign policy. So industrial policy, I'm going to spend a few moments just talking about each of these, and then I'm going to talk about the political economy aspect, and then I'll loop around and re revisit each of the three. Industrial policy is pretty straightforward. A government sets national policies that influence its industrial sector. That's what it is at its very core. The standards is the idea of import substitution. It's a form of protectionism. Import substitution is the following. Let's say you want your country to manufacture computers but they're not doing it, right? You say, well, I think we should have a strong manufacturing base and I want my country to produce more computers. What's one way of doing that? You block all imports of computers. You say, we, I'm erecting barriers such that no computers are allowed to enter this country from outside. Now, if you want a, a computer, it's going to have to be produced domestically. So you're incentivizing domestic production. Typically, that is combined with some form of subsidy or tax break to manufacturers in certain areas, certain lines of production. So a government might say, we want more technology. No, ex no importing of technology or there's constraints on how much, and we're going to subsidize or give some kind of benefit to people that enter this industry domestically. And you can see the idea behind this, right? The idea is simply one of creating incentive to create a domestic manufacturing base. That's the fundamental idea. Note, by the way, this isn't just the policy of poor countries. Developed countries have that. In the United States, every state has targeted benefits that they give to companies. And they give those to companies in the name of what? Creating jobs, creating economic growth, right? So this policy is prevalent. <clears throat> foreign aid. There's a whole host of different categories of foreign aid. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about them. But I just want to spend a few moments because, of course, people throw around this term a lot, but it's used in different ways. And so bilateral aid is government to government aid. Bi is two, so it's transfer of aid from one government to another. Multilateral aid, in contrast, is one where governments or members of an organization give aid to some organization that then distributes it out. All right, the World Bank, the IMF, 
These are multilateral organizations. The member governments give money to that organization, and then the organization distributes it. Humanitarian aid is aid meant for short-term relief. I should have mentioned, typically, but not always, and this is where it gets very confusing because people, that's what I'm saying, people use these terms differently. Bilateral aid and multilateral aid are typically also called development aid. So people say they, they are investments in long-term development. Humanitarian aid is meant for immediate relief. Now, you can see why these things can get a little confusing, which is why cross-country comparisons with aid oftentimes is difficult because they oftentimes categorize aid in different buckets. Here's an example. If you build, give money to build a hospital, is that humanitarian aid or development aid? You could say, look, the hospital is going to provide immediate relief to those that are suffering, so it is humanitarian in nature. At the same time, you could easily argue that in generating or producing that hospital, assuming it's produced, oftentimes with aid it never gets produced in the first place, but we'll come back to that later. You could say, look, by providing health care to people, you are making them more productive over the long term, and in doing so, you are contributing to long-term development. So it can get counted either way. And so you can see how these things can get a little tricky. Military aid is pretty straightforward. It is, the, uh, it is aid that provides military equipment, tanks, helicopters, missiles, guns, and so on to other governments. Uh, and then aid tar targeted towards specific policy goals. What's an example of this? The United States government gives a lot of aid uh, to support the war on drugs. Gives money to other foreign governments to be spent on combating narcotics. That would be categorized under this bucket of aid. You can read the type of aids that are uh, type of aid that's listed there. Uh, I won't go into that in detail. I just wanted to give you some kind of background. So trends in foreign aid. Again, so we, we see aid really start to take off in the post-World War II period. People had talked about it prior. Governments had given aid, but it really started to become a big thing, 1930s, 1940s. And there's a couple broad trends. I'm simplifying here, but only somewhat. It's a pretty accurate representation of the broad trends in foreign aid. Uh, the first one was the investment gap. The investment gap went something like this. Poor countries are poor uh, because they're poor. Uh, this is the idea of a poverty trap. Uh, so the idea goes something like this. In order to produce more stuff, you need to make capital investments. But you can't make capital investments if you're living on a subsistence income because you're consuming everything that, that you produce in order to subsist. So therefore, you can't save to invest in capital to lengthen the structure of production and to produce more stuff so you can't get wealth. What was the solution? Investment from the outside. Right? If you've ever heard the term the big push, that's getting at what I'm talking about here. What do we need? A coordinated nationwide effort to invest in certain key infrastructure, physical, cap physical capital, and so on. Individuals left to their own devices can't do it because it's a collective action problem and they don't have the money. So how do we do it? Governments. You get external governments to pony up the investment. You get them to work in conjunction with the domestic invest uh, government to invest in the appropriate areas to generate wealth. How do we know that? Well, we just talk to our development experts. They tell us how much is needed using their basic models and where to invest it. And voila, you get development. That's the idea behind this. It makes sense on the face of it, right? You can see why people would uh, think that. Remember, 40s, there's no public choice at this time. And uh, of course, we have Austrian economics, but uh, people in development economics tend not to like it too much. Because, by the way, and I already got at this, and we should be very clear about this, modern development economics is socialism. It is central planning writ large. It was grounded in the same ideas as central planning, uh, and it still persists to this day. 
central planning as a means of economic organization is out of date. That's like 1980s. The new central planning is development economics. There, it's still cool to do it, right? You're not, you're not a socialist if you do it, right? You still like people. In fact, you care about the poor people, right? And so, uh, but it's the same methods, right? The, what's the idea of the big push? It's forced industrialization. What I talked about earlier in the Soviet Union, that's fundamentally the idea behind it. So what happens? Well, the experts were puzzled because as they started spending a lot of money to invest in physical capital, they didn't see a change in growth rates as captured, by the way, by national income accounting. So I'm sticking with that for now. I'm going to come back and point out why that's faulty later on. But in any case, it wasn't working. So they say, well, what's the issue? I don't understand. Our model said if we gave this much money and they spent it the way we told them to, that they will get growth. Well, it must be that they're, them over there, remember there's the we and the them, they're not smart enough. They don't know how to use the gift we are bestowing upon them in the appropriate manner to get the outcomes that we think they should be getting. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to tell them what to do because they're not that smart. So we're going to start investing in education. We're going to start investing in training and so on. So you get a push to not only have the investments in physical capital, but also education. So really in the 1960s, you really see the push to enroll more kids in school, to increase the amount of training in poor societies and so on. That doesn't work so well. So what happens? The 1980s come around, and the experts say, well, wait, we're giving them the money, we're giving them the training, I don't understand what's happening. And they say, well, wait, I know what's wrong, there's too many of them, right? So we just need to tell them that there's something called the condom, right? And if we just drop those down, that will help solve the problem, right? It will reduce the per capita, right, the number of people. So then we'll get higher per capita GDP. What else happens? Conditionality. Now, conditionality makes sense on the face of it. What's conditionality? I'm going to give you aid, but with conditions tied to, it, uh, tied to it. So you can have aid, but you must do X, Y, and Z. Again, on the face of it, this makes sense. It's the idea of accountability. So you, you say, well, this makes perfect sense. Why don't they, why, they should do it. And maybe they should. But there was this push to do this. And I'll come back and talk about why it didn't work out later on. And then there was this idea of debt forgiveness. All right, so then the other argument that started to be made was, well, here's the problem. Not any of the other stuff. We still need investment. We still need human capital. But these governments have taken out so much debt in the past that all the aid we're giving them is going to service the debt. So they're not spending it on value-added investments that we want them to. So we're going to forgive the debt. We're just going to wipe it off the books. And then those governments can utilize the aid for investment, for human capital, for overpopulation issues to actually help people to generate development. And all of these still exist to this day. There's a combo, right? There's probably some other things too, but these are the main categories that I see. So there's still massive investments in infrastructure undertaken by governments. There's lots of talk, which I'm going to come back to later, but there's always lots of talk of, there's always fads. So, you know, one of the fads now that's very big, in addition to randomized control trials, is citizen participation or local level development, right? And it all sounds very nice. It sounds like people are doing stuff and individuals are doing stuff. If you look deep enough into any of these things, behind it you'll see a very tall hierarchy of a variety of government agencies, all backed by the highest level of government agencies, which is nation states. So the money always comes down and trickles through a variety of places. They're all, all the NGOs end up being extensions of the government and so on down the line. And so all of these are still at work today. Now here's the other thing, I mentioned this earlier. 
We have industrial policy. We have foreign aid. The militarization of development. This, again, started in the, following the two world wars. What's the Marshall Plan? The Marshall Plan, of course, is a massive injection of aid overseen by the military. But this really ramped up in the post-9-11 period. Uh, and you can see it if you look hard enough. It's very, you don't even have to look that hard. It's actually very obvious. Uh, Robert Gates, who was the defense secretary at the time, uh, in a speech, made it very clear. He says, look, the United States needs a military who can kick down the door and also rebuild things. All right? So it's not just enough that the U.S. military can go around and physically either destroy things or threaten to destroy things. They also need to actively engage in economic development. What's another example of this? Uh, this book, uh, the U.S. Army Stability Operations Manual, it was published in 2008. It's available free online. Uh, it is a, basically like the Boy Scout handbook for members of the military. Uh, but it, it's actually very telling uh, in terms of what the mindset is of the U.S. government when it comes to foreign policy in general. And as I mentioned, foreign aid, uh, militarization, the military, uh, even encouraging certain types of industrial policy, they're all wound together in foreign policy, all right? Along with diplomacy as well, these things are all linked. You can go look, by the way, at lots of talks by uh, Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. One of her big things was what she called the three Ds, development, diplomacy, and defense. And she said, the reason U.S. foreign policy is messed up is because we lack coordination. Right? There's all these segmented areas. So we have the development arm. That's USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. They're spending money on the things I talked about. Then we have the diplomats. Then we have the military. And really the problem is that we just need better coordination among these three. If we had better coordination among these three, we could do whatever we wanted to. Right? We can accomplish what we want to accomplish. And so you see this effort to push these things together. By the way, just as an aside, for every dollar that the U.S. spends on aid and diplomacy, they spend $11 on the military. All right, so the military dominates all of this by leaps and bounds. <clears throat> In any case, this is from the Stability Operations Manual. All right, so just take a look. I won't read this to you, but just think about members of the military and how unfair this is to them. Right? Imagine being a member of the military. What are you? What is your comparative advantage? Force. That's what the military's for, either the threat of use of force or the actual use of force. That's why we have a military. But what's the task now? To become social engineers of such a magnitude that it's actually staggering. It is literally to rebuild entire societies. It's all documented in here. It's all laid out in a very bullet form type approach, which again, captures the mindset, the mentality of how people think about this. Here's one example. All right, this is the way that people in the U.S. government think about these things. All right? I don't know if anyone caught the irony of the five-step plan, but we'll put that aside for a moment. <clears throat> you want an economy, you just build some infrastructure, create a workforce, protect natural resources, build financial institutions, get rid of black markets, mix it together, right? Look at how it's written. There's specific steps, and it's very linear. It's a very neat process. It's the equivalent of buying, well, I was going to say an Ikea piece of Ikea furniture, but that's a lot harder than this, putting Ikea furniture together. So in any case, you understand my point. This is the way people think about it. And if you look at this, you will see this repeatedly over and over again. Same thing for democracy, and this is cut off, so there's other examples as well. I think the judiciary is above this, and there's a couple others as well. So that's kind of the lay of the land, those three broad policies. So has it, been, has it been effective? That's the key question. If it has, 
we can all just pat people on the back and say, good job. Now, here's the thing. Economists can't agree if it's been effective or not. Now, look, if you've ever gotten into a discussion or a debate, and if not, you can just listen to me because I've been in many on these topics, on this, this is typically how it goes. Someone is going to point out good stuff that's happened. Or they'll just say the Marshall Plan over and over again, or Japan and Germany following World War II. And then you will point out things that have gone wrong. You'll point out lots of cases of foreign aid that were wasted or military adventures that have gone awry. And then they'll come back and point out good stuff. You'll just keep going back and forth, right? And it's a non-starter in some sense. And it's the same thing when it comes to the consensus on state-led development. Here's just two examples. <clears throat> These are two development economists talking about uh, three years after the Haitian earthquake. The Haitian earthquake, the, the response by the U.S. and other governments, is considered the largest humanitarian effort to date. All right? And they say, look, it's kind of bad that this is so big, yet we can't determine if it's been a success or failure. Again, you can see why. If your benchmark for success is we gave people some water in a tent, then it's successful. But if your benchmark is what? Well, remember the motto that everyone was saying, like Bill Clinton and Sean Penn? Why, I don't know why the hell he was involved, but he was there. In any case, build it back better, right? We are going to build Haiti back better than it was. That was the claim that was being made. If you look or judge it on that margin, it's a failure. So you can see why there'd be disagreement. Is it a success or not? Other people say things like, well, we just need more time, or we just need more resources, or we just need the right people in charge. Then it will be different. And so, again, it kind of makes it tough. Well, let's go to the empirical evidence, because that's where we find all our answers, right? Turns out, not so much. Uh, again, if you've ever looked at this stuff, for every foreign aid study that you can find that shows support for it, you can find uh, one, if not more, that shows that aid fails. These are empirical studies, so they're looking at foreign aid, and then growth rates in GDP, right? Controlling for a whole bunch of stuff. So this is a, a, a meta-study. So it's looking at something like 76 econometric studies, or somewhere in the 70s, I believe, on foreign aid. And they say, look, it's very sad. It's failed. <clears throat> These authors come back and say, well, we, reviewed, we did our own meta-study, and aid works pretty well. So what are we to do? Are we to throw our hands up as economists and say, well, we have nothing to say. We just need to collect more data and, and run more regressions, and maybe someday we'll be able to determine if aid works or not, or if humanitarian efforts are successful or not. And what I want to suggest is we don't have to do that. Right? Contrary, and then Professor Kirzner mentioned this last night in his talk, but contrary to the, to the popular cliche, facts don't speak for themselves. Facts don't generate policy conclusions by themselves. We need theory. We need theory to determine what data to collect, how to interpret that data, and what it means. And so what I want to suggest is that the standard approach to looking at these articles, uh, these approaches, which is well, we just need to collect more data, or when people say, well, I'm not ideological about these things. I just, I'm just saying what the data tells me, right? It's BS. Because it's like, how do you know what it's telling you? How do you know what data to collect? How do you interpret it? What are the mechanisms that are underlying the outcomes that you are purporting to exist? Well, you need theory in order to Explain that. And what I want to suggest is that straightforward, very clear economic theory can get us a long way in telling us not so much how to create development anew, although it can tell us the broad conditions, but rather of providing us negative knowledge. That is telling us what we can't do. The limits on our ability to address the question I started with, which is what must we do to end suffering? And so that takes us to the political economy of development. <clears throat> 
I won't spend a lot of time on this again because I'm sure you've all heard it or it's been discussed throughout your time here last night and today. But look, here's really what this comes down to. At the core of this, there's this notion of adaptability. A, a, when we talk about the adaptability of a system, we're talking about two aspects of it. Is there feedback mechanisms? Those feedback me mechanisms need to generate the appropriate knowledge to alert the actors within the system as to whether they are acting in a manner that is conducive to achieving the desired ends. Okay, so that's the feedback loop. Then there's the incentive issue. You need to have the incentive to act on that feedback. If either of those two things are missing, you're not gonna get the outcomes you want. That is, if the requisite knowledge is not provided to the actors within the system, when they make errors, those errors are going to persist precisely because they don't know that they are making the errors. Likewise, if they lack the incentive to act on that information or knowledge, they're not going to do so, and so errors will persist. That's a very powerful set of tools, and all I'm doing really in some sense, not all I'm doing, I wish more people did it, is combining the insights from the Austrian tradition with those from the public choice tradition. The Austrians emphasize that, and well, even I should even make a, a that's too strong of a claim. Actually, the Austrians got this all. Right? Public choice economists got it too on the latter part. But really the market process is what at its very core. Generates economic knowledge, but also creates an incentive to act on that knowledge, to seek it out and to act on it. And so really all you need to get this is market process, but we'll give Buchanan some love as well. All right, so knowledge problem. The knowledge problem, the way I want to talk about it here is slightly different than the way most Austrians talk about it, all right? And that's really on two levels. I'm gonna start on the non-traditional aspect first, which is the knowledge over the existing institution. So the, the way that most people talk about the knowledge problem is in, within the context of a given set of institutions. So we have a given set of political institutions or, or economic institutions. And then we say, do the actors within the system generate or discover the appropriate knowledge? Can they do that? Right? The economic knowledge to use resources in, their, in, the, in the highest valued manner. What I want to talk about is the actual ability to design the institutions themselves. Now, while I say it's not the traditional approach that most Austrians focus on, it's not completely absent. Hayek talked about this idea of the extended order, which he referred to as this overarching framework of institutions. And what he pointed out was that this complex array of institutions uh, was beyond the grasp of human reason. We, by that I mean the actors in the system, could not understand, even if we tried, the complex array of historical experiences, norms, traditions, whatever you want to call it, that went into the variety of institutions which constitute the spontaneous order. <clears throat> so these are largely undesigned. Okay? And again, it's, Hayek's very clear. It's not that there's no design taking place. It's that the overarching order as a whole is not designed. So why he makes the distinction, of course, between organizations or planned forms of order and undesigned or emergent or spontaneous orders. <clears throat> Here's why this matters. It's, it's what uh, you might think of as this idea of institutional stickiness. It's very simple. You cannot just jam whatever you want in a, whatever context you want and have it stick. Not if your goal is to create a free society, which is the stated end, if you look, of state-led development. If you look at the United States government's foreign policy, whether it's foreign aid, whether it's the military, whether it's diplomacy, they don't say things like, our goal is to colonize 
countries around the world and to rape, pillage, and plunder. They say we want to spread democracy, we want to create liberty, we want to have people vote, we want to create a market economy. Again, go back and look at this handbook or the image I put up from it. Now, that might be a crock. That might not be true. But we're going to take them at their word because I don't know what's in their head, right? And I think the case is actually stronger, much like Mises and Hayek pointed out in the socialist calculation debate, if we grant them the best assumptions. That is, they actually want to accomplish what they say they want to accomplish. And then we can show the weaknesses of that. And so I've always thought this is just two puzzle pieces, right? There's underlying stuff. This is all the parts that Hayek was talking about of the extended order. And then there's stuff we want, right? We, again, being the outside experts or at the national level, the experts who say, I can create development through these policies. And what happens? Well, more often than not, those supposed experts just try to jam on top of whatever exists down here what they want. But what happens if this foundation is minuscule? It's like this, so that this piece doesn't fit in. Well, you have two options. You either back off or you force it. And how do you force it? Through force, through the military. And so here's the thing. You can't have a liberal society, and by I'm using liberal in the traditional sense, that is one based on self-determination, individual rights, and so on, unless that bottom part lines up with the top part. Because where they don't, you're going to have to substitute voluntary compliance with force. When people say, I don't want what you are offering, you, have a, you can either say, okay, I will go home now, or no, you're going to like it. I'm sure you've all saw, seen the meme on Facebook, right, with the U.S. military people kicking in the door in Afghanistan. It's like, I'm here to bring you freedom or democracy or whatever it says. It's that kind of logic, right? Now, think about how politicians talk, by the way. President George W. Bush, President Barack Obama, what do they say? If you listen to them, they'll say things like this. Iraqis, Afghanis, they wasted or squandered the opportunity that we gave them to be free. Again, it's this mentality that the enlightened outsiders have bestowed upon people this opportunity and that they have rejected it because of their stupidity. That's one alternative. Another alternative is they didn't want it. I could show up at your, in your backyard or your front yard or kick in your door. No, I'm not a member of a SWAT team. In any case, with a gun and say, here, look, this is what you need to do to live a better life. Right? And you say, no, thank you. And I could say, well, you're squandering the opportunity I'm giving you to live a better life. And you'll say, no, I don't view this as an opportunity. I view it as a course of threat. Now think about that and then think about U.S. foreign policy. And they're quite similar at the end of the day. My point being that you just can't go around and jam things on where you want to. I'm sure you, many of you, especially the GMU students here, have heard Pete Becky talk about this example of, look, could you just pick up the U.S. Constitution and send it around where you wanted to and say, look, just follow the rules, right? It worked well here for about two years. <laughs> that part's my addition. He likes the Constitution. Anyway, the, the, um, um, and we'd say, no, it won't work, right? Why? Because, the, as Hayek points out, law, legislation, and liberty, to the extent the U.S. Constitution has worked, it worked because the underlying dispositions were such that you did not need to specify all the details in the Constitution. Yet people acted as if they were aligned with the Constitution because the underlying dispositions aligned with the formal rules. All right, that's really what it's getting at here. Now you can do this. You can jam this piece on top of this, right? We've done it before. It's called an atomic bomb. It can be done. 
Most people find it repugnant what it would take to do that, right? So the United States could easily get the outcome that people wanted in terms of order or control or even freedom. In Afghanistan, they say, look, we're going to kill everyone that doesn't agree and then everyone else can be free. That's, again, most people find that repugnant. And that's ultimately what it's going to take. So you can already start to see, which is slightly beyond the scope of my talk, but still an insight for those interested in foreign policy, how the light footprint approach that the United States has adopted following 9-11 is bound to fail. Because it's like this weird medium where we're going to intervene and use a little bit of force, but not too much force, right? Because we want self-determination, but we still want the outcomes we want. But those things don't jive. Now, some people are very clear about this. I'm going to come back to Paul Collier, who's a development economist at the end. But uh, Ferguson, the historian, at, is he at Harvard or Stanford, wherever the hell he is? He's very clear in his book, Colossus. He says, look, the US government should colonize weak and failed states. Right? Why? Because they are not capable of governing themselves. Right? At least he's honest about it. That's really what most people believe in the foreign policy establishment. They just don't want to come out and say it because it's politically incorrect. But he understands the point. He says, look, if you just go around saying, we're going to interject, intervene here and here just lightly, you're not going to get the outcome you want. So we'll just force it. And then when they're ready, they can govern themselves. It's very old school, right? That's the old school view of colonization. There's certain barbarians that are, are savages. They're not capable of self-governance. And so the enlightened Westerner needs to govern them until they are capable of doing that. That's the idea behind it. And so that's the overarching problem. Now we can return to the basics. And you'll say, well, why are you showing us Econ 101? And here's why I'm showing it to you. Because actually, if you pay attention, it's weird. Economists who actually teach, which is an increasingly small number, in any case, teach by day Econ 101. So they walk into their class and they tell students, you know, scarcity, we have this economic problem. And then they'll go be consultants for the World Bank, the IMF, USAID. And they'll, their contract is to say, tell me how to develop this country, right? Or this society. What do we need to do? Goes back to my question of how do we end suffering? All of a sudden, these basic questions, these crucial but basic questions go out the window. The key issue is how are you going to answer these questions? How are you going to decide what to do? And you all know, again, this is the insight of Mises and Hayek. The issue of how you solve the economic problem as they both emphasize, and then Buchanan emphasized later, it's not given. It's not something that can be solved. It is a discovery process. It is something that must emerge from the very process of interaction and exchange that takes place in markets. This goes back to my first slide of what constitutes development. This is the calculation argument, or the socialist calculation debate. That's the core idea behind it. That's it. There's no other way to do this. <clears throat> so what can government do? It's not that government can't do anything, by the way. And we shouldn't argue against this, those of us who are skeptical. We should concede it. Here's what government can do. They can spend money that they get through either taxing through debt or through printing it, and they can get stuff. This is not jarring. This should not be a novel insight. It is logic. If you spend a dollar more on something, you should get a dollar more of output. What it can't do is solve economic development. It can't solve the economic problem that Hayek and Mises emphasized and pointed out was at the core of the market process and the process of development. These are very different things. Increasing predetermined outputs is not economic development. It is true that economic development entails producing more things that people value, but simply increasing output is not the same. This goes back to what I had said earlier about national income accounting and the idea of 
aggregating up development and then trying to act on that aggregate like you can do stuff. This is a cartoon that Pete Betke actually showed me back in graduate school, or maybe even undergraduate, but I like it to illustrate this point. It's called The One-Ton Nail. It's an old Soviet cartoon. And the plant manager uh, is talking to the worker, and the worker says, who needs a nail this big? And the plant manager says, who cares? The important thing is we fulfilled our plan for nails in one fell swoop. Right? What was the plan? Your output target is one ton of nails. And they met the output target. Output has increased. GDP increased, by the way, under this. GDP has gone up. But no one can use it as not value-added output. So if you go back to the Soviet Union, Warren Nutter, Paul Craig Roberts, Murray Rothbard, by the way, in Man, Economy, and State, what are they all talking about? Well, it's kind of odd that people keep cheering on the Soviet Union as if they are producing so much value-added output, while when we actually look, the average citizen doesn't seem to be that well off and doesn't seem to be getting any better off. They have to wait in very long lines for basic items, right? And as Rothbard says, a man economy and state and others said, look, they're investing all their resources in military and in certain types of infrastructure, right? And so they're capturing that in the aggregate output statistics, and that's what's being picked up. That's what's driving it. Now you say, great cartoon, great little example of the Soviet Union. That's old now. What do you got for us? Got plenty. Several years ago, a lot of people were raving that Afghan's GDP was increasing at like 8% per year. And they were saying things like, yes, this is so successful. It's growing at such an amazing rate, right? This is truly a marvelous achievement of the United States government. And it turns out it's just fake. Look, if you spend money, you're going to get output. You should, by the way. Actually, you're not going to because a lot of cases, as you, many of you know who have looked at foreign aid, the money just disappears. It never gets to the places it's meant to get to, which means it doesn't even produce the one-ton nail. I'll come back to that later. <clears throat> but as the Senate Relations, Foreign Relations Committee points out, uh, look, Afghan, the Afghan economy, by the way, this excludes opium, which is about somewhere in the, I've, again, it's not officially measured, somewhere in the 10 to, to 40% range. So I realize it's a huge range, but that's what I've read. That's the main crop in Afghanistan. A whole other issue, by the way, and uh, a, a great case study on the war on drugs is the U.S. effort to eradicate, uh, I emphasize effort, failed effort to eradicate opium production in Afghanistan, which was a disaster. They spent something like 9 to $11 billion, and the opium production is the highest it's ever been. Um, <clears throat> so, again, just pay attention. You will see one-ton nails all around you. By the way, they exist in, in the first world, too. The big dig in Boston, one-ton nail. The, the nice part for us is that we are fortunate enough that we're wealthy enough that we have a buffer, right? We have surplus wealth in order that we can afford stupid government policies. But when you're in Afghanistan and you're have your per capita GDP is a couple hundred dollars a year, right? It's not, it's not easy to do, which is why the, the economy would basically collapse the minute the U.S. government starts propping it up with artificial stimulus, mainly spent on military-type projects. <clears throat> Again, I don't have time to get into it, but if you think I'm over-exaggerating this, go spend a, a few hours looking at the Special Inspector General for the Afghanistan Reconstruction, Saigar. You can find all the reports online, and you will just see example after example of this. Just pure waste, corruption, and fraud, with no one held accountable whatsoever. And so it just happens on repeat. So let's just spend a few minutes thinking about these. I'm going to go through these relatively quick because you got them down. But again, keep this in mind, guys. Most economists don't. Most economists 
advocate for some combination of these things. <clears throat> so what are the issues with industrial policy? The same issues that plague all efforts at government protectionism. Who gets the protection? Now, people will say things like Joe Stiglitz, for instance, who's a fan of protectionism, right? A massive fan in his latest book, Creating a Learning Society. He wants to create it. What's one of the ways you create it? He says, well, look, we can't have this international competition because of infant industries in our own, in, in, our, in the developing countries that can't compete. There's knowledge externality, so we need subsidies, right? Because the world's plagued by market failures. So what does he say? You block off imports from manufacturing, you start subsidizing research and development, and voila, that will lead to development. But who's going to make these decisions? Again, this goes back to my second slide or third slide. Who is the we? Who makes these determinations? And how do they know what to do? You can't treat government as if it is some all-knowing entity, which, of course, is the foundation of this. A social welfare function combined with an all-knowing and benevolent government means glory. But that's not reality. And so what else happens? Opportunity cost of resources, rent-seeking order to secure resources, and so on. The standard type of things. <clears throat> Notice, again, that none of this is at odds with increasing GDP. I am not arguing that government can not, uh, can not increase GDP if they want. They can do it any time they want, because government spending is included in it. it. My point is one of value-added. I mention this because here is one of the things you will encounter if you if perhaps you have. Someone will point out to you when you talk about development that country X developed and they had industrial policy. They'll even point out the United States at some point in time had protectionism, right, in its history, actually throughout its history, right? And they'll say, see? And you will say, well, there's a difference between causation and correlation, right? Just because things happen together doesn't mean they one cause the other. We actually need to look at this. And then you can say, okay, what were the opportunity costs of the resources the government spent to subsidize those industries? What could they have been used for? And of course, they can't answer that question since you can't know what the opportunity cost is. But of course, opportunity cost is one of the fundamental concepts of economics, which goes back to my Econ 101 slide, right? With development, with other areas of economics too, but especially with development, Econ 101 just goes out the window. People don't pay attention to these type of things. Foreign aid. Same thing. How are you going to decide how to allocate aid? Who gets it? How are you going to create development? You say, well, I'm just concerned about humanitarianism. Well, who's going to get it then? Humanitarian budgets are fixed. There's lots of people that are suffering. There are a variety of margins on which you can help people. So how are you going to decide how to help them? That's what you need to figure out. <clears throat> Hopefully, not surprisingly, the minute a government, or governments plural, drop millions, if not billions of dollars in a poor society, it is like bees attracted to honey. People come out of the woodwork trying to grab as much as, it, as they can as quickly as they can. That goes for politicians. It goes for the agencies involved. It goes for the United States, by the way, even internal. Again, if you ever want an actual understanding of how foreign policy works, the best place to go is the people that have run it. Go read Robert Gates' memoir. He's like three of them, but read the one called Duty. He talks about, he goes, I came into D.C., we're fighting Iraq and Afghanistan. And he says, what I realized was the biggest war was in the halls of Washington. Why? Well, because the State Department wants to control policy. And they go, well, no, the Pentagon wants to control policy. They want the bigger budget. They want control. So they're all fighting with each other. But we're also supposed to be unified to provide the public good of national defense. Nope. Doesn't happen. 
<clears throat> NGOs, again, Haiti's a perfect case study. Haiti is known as the Republic of NGOs. Why? Because NGOs set up shop there because governments pour money in. Prior to the earthquake, there was 10,000. Post-earthquake, about 15,000. It's a pretty good growth rate. Lots of NGOs. Why? Because there's money to be had by doing that. And so you all understand this. You know, I, I'm always amazed by, by the lack of attention to this stuff, but it's really true, you know. And it's weird on both sides, right? Those who tend to be ideologically conservative will say things like, oh, we need to, you know, we got to get government out of healthcare and out of education because it just ruins it. The government doesn't know what's best for kids. And it's like, all right, you're on. And then it's like, well, except for foreign policy, they need to go over there and not just design the education system, but the judiciary and the political system and the monetary system and all this. It's like, wait, those things don't really comport. There's one of two issues. Either you can't do it abroad or we just need to bring back the military apparatus here, and that's the problem. It's the wrong people and techniques have been being used domestically. And then what do you have those on the left? Oh, capitalism's terrible because you have these big corporations that take over things and they get these they take over government and they screw the little guy over. And then what do they say? Well, it's okay when you go abroad as long as it's humanitarian. Well, who do you think is going to be in a position of power to secure all the benefits that are being dropped out, literally out of helicopters, uh, airplanes, as the Afghanistan picture showed, the other, when these things are made available? That's exactly what we would expect. So you get systematic unintended consequences on a massive scale. Where political institutions are stable, you empower people typically the most brutal thugs in the world. Now, one of the little tricks people play is they'll say something like this. Well, the reason they can't reform is because they don't have the resources to reform. They really want to. They're really good, well-intentioned people. They just don't have enough money. That's why we need the foreign aid. And you have to think to yourself, well, is that true, right? And my position on this, which you might think is overly simplistic, but one that uh, I base on, on, on real-life experience, uh, which is the following. We know that private property rights are important for development. Uh, and we know what private property rights entail. Or, you know, we know what they don't entail. You don't hit people, you don't take their stuff. So, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, with just a little bit of discussion, got this down. You don't take stuff from people when they're using it, and you don't punch them. Those are inappropriate behaviors. There you go. Truly, you don't want to, you don't want to be corrupt, you don't want to take stuff, just don't take it. Just stand there like this. And they'll say, no, we don't have, I really want to, but no one else wants to. That's why I need the money. But then you say, well, wait. Number one, you still can. But number two, if you can't solve this grand collective action problem, right, absent the money, you're claiming that we're going to dump billions of dollars into a corrupt system and somehow magically people are going to say, like, okay, let's solve that collective action problem now. It's going to be precisely the opposite. Yet again, people pretend this doesn't exist. They pretend it doesn't create this dependency effect. That's the problem in Haiti right now, which is when do you leave, right? When do you leave Haiti? You can't leave because they're hungry, right? They're thirsty. We can't just ditch them. So then you're there forever. That's why you have all the NGOs, and it just perpetuates. By the way, there's a great empirical paper um, in the AER, American Economic Review. I think it's two or three years ago by Nathan Nunn and Nancy uh, Kwan, Kwan? Chang, however you say her name. I forget him. It's called, I think it's called something like aid stealing or something like that. They empirically show uh, that when the U.S. and other governments dump food aid, this is just food aid, into conflict situations, it prolongs the length of the conflict. And it's very simple why. The thugs who are engaged in the conflict steal it and then 
man, use it to manipulate people to get the outcomes they want. Uh, and this just uh, intensifies the wars. Everyone's trying to grab the food. And that's something harmless, supposedly, like food aid. Military intervention suffers from all of the above, plus, and especially, plus, a complete ignorance of the extended order. And this is not an exaggeration. This is General McChrystal, who ran the Afghan forces, right? He says, look, this is him talking to the Council on Foreign Relations. He says, we didn't know anything about Afghanistan's history. Remember my little puzzle pieces, all right? We didn't know anything. We just kind of went in there and said, we'll rebuild the country, all right? This is the mentality. By the way, McChrystal retires. Does anyone know what he's doing right now? Consulting. Yeah, consulting firm in Arlington, Virginia. What does he consult on? Yeah, nation building. So you don't have to go that far to actually look at the history of Afghanistan. Of course, most people that went to school know the Afghan-Soviet war. Uh, but if you've just looked at foreign aid, uh, you know there's something, or maybe you don't, called the Helmand Valley Project. The Helmand Pro Valley Project is one of the most infamous uh, economic development projects in modern development economics. The Helmand Valley, Valley is in the southern part of Afghanistan. Uh, and starting uh, somewhere in the uh, 40s, I think it was, in 50s, uh, a bunch of the developed governments got together and said, look, Afghanistan's a poor place. We're going to help it develop. And you can look this up. What was the plan? We are going to create, they called it, a little America in Afghanistan. So they get the experts over there. They start literally moving people around. They say, well, you're a nomadic group. That's not good. You're going to stay here and farm. They give them tractors, right? They start building infrastructure. The, for those of you who paid attention, of course, Helmand Valley, ironically, was one of the most, and still is, one of the most contested areas in Afghanistan. So you'll remember that when the U.S. troops went in, what was happening? The bad guys were hanging, uh, hiding in the canals as cover. The U.S. had built those canals, which, again, is sad and ironic. But in any case, you can just read this New York Times article, right? You don't even have to go beyond this. You can just start with this. It talks about it. It's a comedy of errors. It goes on to talk about how there's rusting equipment sitting there, state-of-the-art equipment that people aren't using. There's no conflict going on at this time, by the way, of this article, okay? It's peaceful. And they talk about how the human element, what you and I would call the incentives and the beliefs and traditions, just didn't comport with what the planners wanted to do. And it goes on and on. <clears throat> this is declassified plan that was for Afghanistan, uh, and it is patently absurd. How anyone can do this and not get laughed out of a room, uh, I don't understand, but it happens repeatedly. Uh, it really does. You know, I, 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 several years ago, uh, every summer I talked to a group of members of the military, and I go through this stuff, and I remember the first time I did it, uh, this guy came up. He was in, I, 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 he's not a guy, he has some, like, you know how they have all the names and the colors. In any case, the, the um, you know, all the badges and everything. In any case fatigues and everything. He like crushed my hand. He's like, you know, I have eight deployments to Afghanistan. And I'm like, yeah, I live in Fairfax. And, um, <laughs> you know, so I'm going through all this and I bring this in. I'm kind of making fun of it. And he's like, no, well, now we got rid of that. Now we do like three page white papers, right? And so we really condense it down. So it's not as dense. And I'm like, I think you're missing the point. It's not an issue of density. It's, a, it's an issue of what content you can actually understand. But this is it. And you can look this up. I want you to understand what happened. Someone in the U.S. government hired a consultant most likely from an Ivy League school because that's what they learned there. PowerPoint, that's what an Ivy League MBA does. <laughs> they, they hired them and said, I want you to, on about 25 PowerPoint slides, put together an entire country, Afghanistan. And that's what they did. It starts like here, and you keep hitting return, and it keeps building up. And, then, and it's like, well, no, what are you talking about? We have, you said culture matters. We have it here, right? We have, 
insurgents up here. We have all the stuff. And it's like, no, I didn't mean like say the words. Those words actually have content, right? They have content in about in what you can do. But this is the mentality that people have, all right? Libya. Now you'll recall, Obama comes to office. Oh, we're going to get rid of all the foreign policy of George W. Bush. Here's a medal because you like peace and you said those words, right? So what happens? Well, oh, he says, we're not going to get bogged down like Iraq and Afghanistan. So we're going to go into Libya, but we're not going to have any boots on the ground. We're just going to enforce a no-fly zone. It works. No-fly zone, Qaddafi gets overthrown. Terrible guy, by the way, except when he was an ally of the US not too long ago, but we'll put that aside for a few moments. So what happens? Everyone starts patting themselves on the back. This is the new model. You can look up Foreign Affairs, which is one of the Beltway publications that is like with, through the Council of Foreign Relations that talks about foreign policy. They say Libya is the way to go. You just send the Air Force in or drones, right? You get the outcome you want and you're out, right? People seem to forget what? Well, what happens the day after the, the government collapses? Turns out there's a civil war and a regional conflict in Mali because of the intervention there. So this is 2011. Good job in Libya. This is 2015. All right? And so now Libya is a backup plan for ISIS, which of course means what? Now the U.S. has to go in and get ISIS, which was what? A result of the interventions in Iraq and elsewhere. So this is like a perpetuating, never-ending, vicious circle of misery, of resource waste and incompetence over and over again. And so summing up, Get out of your head, and I think most of you probably have it out of your head already, that there's this idea that someone's in charge. No one is in charge of complex systems. That goes for the market, you all know this, but it goes for all complex systems. No one is in charge of them. That includes international relations. People pretend they're in charge, but they're not in charge. And in fact, where they are in charge, that's typically where misery and squalor emerges. But there's a problem with this mentality. It's not just that it's wrong. It generates this bias towards an unconstrained way of thinking. That is, we can do whatever we want to do because we need to be in charge. Someone has to, right? You hear this all the time. The U.S. needs to police the world. The U.S. needs to be responsible for everything, right? For all the injustices and so on that exist around the world. That's this mentality. So this is the type of reasoning that emerges. Again, this is in the wake of the Haitian earthquake. What happens? Okay, this is the U.S. ambassador to Haiti. There's a silver lining. Nope, not the broken window fallacy, even though that's a common one too. That's the other silver lining. What's the silver lining? We, the enlightened ones, can put them back together the way we've always wanted to. Right? That's the type of reasoning. This is the mentality that underpins foreign policy. You see it throughout. Here's Woodrow Wilson talking about, uh, this is at the founding of the League of Nations in 1919. For the first time in history, we are drawn together and we can solve the problems of poverty in the world. Sounds great. Tugs on the heartstrings. Who wouldn't want to help poor people? Harry Truman, four-point speech. For the first time in history, so that's 1919, 1949. <laughs> now we possess the knowledge and the skill to relieve suffering of people suffering around the world. 2000, Millennium Development Goals. This was George W. Bush's attempt to reform foreign aid. Now we have the resources and know how to do it. We just need to have the political will, which again is another catchphrase for we just got to want it hard enough. Or alternatively, I don't understand incentives. Because <laughs> it sounds nice. Who's not against political will, right? If we just want it, we'll get it. But that's not how the world operates. That's not how things happen. Paul Collier, 
who I dislike greatly. He's a development <laughs> economist at Oxford. And the reason I dislike him is, for those of you who don't know this, here's like development economics in a nutshell. There's Jeff Sachs on the one side. He's at Columbia, the Earth Institute, and Bill Easterly at NYU, right? They've both written books. They've both been involved in, the, in a variety of, of actual development efforts. In addition to the books and journal articles, they've gotten into these public policy debates. So Sachs is the aid lover, and, and Easterly is the aid skeptic. And everyone calls, on the other side calls the other one an ideologue. Then Paul Collier comes in, and he's the reasonable one. Why? Because he data mines, right? And he says, I don't, I don't inject any of my own values into this. I just, do, I just run the regressions. And you can read his books. He talks about this like in the introduction. In the introduction, he's like, I walk into my office on whatever the hell street in Oxford is, right? And he's like, and, and so-and-so is running the regressions and brings me the data results, and we plow through them and find that geography matters and this matters. And it's like, it's so exciting, right? And then he presents all his results, right? And the reason I hate it is because it's this, exactly this mentality. Think, these are quotes from the bottom billion. Right, which is a best-selling book in development economics. He says, aid's not very effective in inducing a turnaround. You have to wait for the political opportunity. When it rises, you just pour it in as quickly as possible. And then after a few years, you pour it in, then you start pouring in money for the government to spend. It's this idea that you can somehow isolate the exact time to do it. Notice, no, no actual discussion of how we're going to figure out what this right opportunity is, how the development side, the donor side, is going to pour it in at the right time. But it gets even worse. Collier is a closet colonizer. He wants to colonize the world. He doesn't put it like this, and he would, get, he would reject me saying this. But take a look. This is right from the bottom billion. Security in post-conflict societies will normally require an external military presence for a long time. So you, both sending and recipient governments should expect this presence for around a decade and must commit to it. Right? He's very specific. Much less than a decade. And the domestic politicians will play a waiting game, right? Because they're going to wait for you to get out and then take advantage. Somehow, magically, at 10-year point, that won't happen anymore. But in any case, more than that, and people are going to start to get angry. How does he know this? Based on the data, right? 10, a decade is the sweet spot. Right? It's like the Goldilocks view of development. Not too much, not too little, just right. But of course, we all know Goldilocks is fiction. And so too is this. The idea that you can somehow figure out what the right amount of resources is at the right amount of time, and then make broad claims based on aggregates, right? These are all aggregates. They're running regressions at the highest level, right? Looking at overall troop levels, timing of those, le those troops in uh, certain countries, the duration, the, re the onset of conflict, and so on. And then they're making very strong claims based on it with no caveats, nothing like, well, this might not work because of X, Y, and Z, what you and I would call political economy type issues. There's none of that. All of those things are just assumed away. <clears throat> and that's problematic. It's not problematic just in terms of like an issue of you know, logic or complete analysis. We're actually talking about human lives here. And the way people talk about them, right? the way Collier and others talk about them, is you can just distill human lives down to like a number. And then you can aggregate it up, and you can just do stuff. right? And you can just do stuff the way you want to do to get the outcomes you want. It's a very odd way of looking at the world. And I would argue a very dangerous way of looking at the world. So here's what I want to suggest. And this is what I started with when I said that economics doesn't give us answers to what creates development, but does shed some insight into what our limits are. I've pointed those out. But it also does shed some insight. Look, guys, we know what development entails. Economic freedom. 
It's literally that simple in terms of the broad conditions. Getting those things are not simple, but that's what it requires. There's nothing else. People can run around and say whatever the latest fad is. And I'm sure some of you might raise your hand after, what about this, what about that? And I'll just say, yep, those are all nice fads. The reality is, is do you give people the freedom to engage in the process of discovery and experimentation or don't you? It's that simple. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. And so that's what's required. Now, you might say, well, look, that's the idea, by the way, of development as an open-ended process versus a closed-end process. The closed-end process is if I have this much investment and this allocation of resources, I get this growth rate. That's a closed system, right? You're treating the world as if it's closed off. I can just pick the points I need, inject the right amount of resources, give them to the right people, and get the right outcome I want. That's not how the world operates. So you, let's go back to the question and say, well, what can we do? <clears throat> And here's what you can do. You can get angry that your government, wherever you're from, because all governments in developed countries do this, erect trade barriers that impoverish millions upon millions of people every year, both in terms of the movement of goods and services, but also the movement of people. So a government truly concerned about improving the welfare of others would very quickly do everything in their power to reduce barriers to trade in the broadest sense. Notice that this does not require any kind of special knowledge. So we're not falling prey to the Mises Hayek knowledge problem. We are unblocking markets, right? We're not picking outcomes. We're saying you are free to trade with people. It's the exact opposite of planning an outcome. It is creating an environment that allows that to happen. Would that solve all the world's problems? Of course not. Would it solve a lot of them? Yeah, it would be better than the status quo. Now, you might say, which many people do, well, that's great for long-term development, but what about short-term assistance? What about those that are suffering? We have some instances where we have anecdotal evidence, at least. <clears throat> Even though we do know, by the way, this is an empirical truth, countries that are wealthier are more insulated from humanitarian shocks. That, just, that makes common sense. If you're wealthier, right, you can, you can, you're more insulated when there's food shortages in a certain area. When there's earthquakes, you are more insulated when your buildings are stronger, right? That's a sign of wealth, that you have resources to invest in buildings, sturdier buildings, and so on. But there's another example, which is right in the wake of uh, the hurricane, uh, excuse me, the storm, yeah, the hurricane in uh, Haiti. And uh, is this is from the World Bank. The World Bank estimates that in the wake of the hurricane, there were about 200,000 Haitians in the United States, and their papers expired. They're here legally. Their papers expired. The United States wasn't going to send them back, or the U.S. government, I should say, uh, because they had nowhere to go. Uh, so they extended their their stay here in the United States. They grant them temporary extensions. It, the World Bank estimates that those 200,000 people sent about $300 million back in remittances to family and friends in Haiti. Uh, that's more foreign aid than the U.S. government gave in that same year. Uh, so imagine what would happen if you doubled that. I don't know if it would double proportionally, but my point being that there's other ways to resolve these issues. Uh, and that's it. Now, this inward focus, because the standard focus, which is the obnoxious, unconstrained focus, again, is the distributional one. There's us and there's them. We need to fix them. That's the Lewis Luck quote on Haiti. That's an outward orientation. Let's have an inward orientation. There's lots of stuff we can do here. Now, what's the standard response? The standard response is, well, we can't do that stuff because of interest groups, right? You can't reduce trade barriers because there's too many domestic political barriers. And I say, point taken. You should also then be against every single foreign intervention. Because any interest group you can point out here, I can point out an analogous one both domestically and then I can tack on 
probably several hundred, if not thousand, internationally. And so if you can't resolve and navigate the domestic uh, space to achieve the outcome that you want, uh, then internationally you're going to have even less luck. And of course, then people might say, well, look, the U.S. government actually doesn't want to help poor people. That's just what they say. And then they erect these barriers precisely because of interest groups. And I say again, then you should be against every foreign intervention because they're going to say they're going to want to do one thing, but they're really going to do another. And so there's two options here. You either have incompetence based on knowledge problems and incentive problems, or you have scoundrels. You have people lying, Neither, or maybe both. Neither one is desirable. And so that's the problem, that's the issue that people face. And again, what I want to just emphasize is that the role of Austrian economics and all that, this, since this seminar is on this, is that Austrian economics has a lot to do and contribute to these areas. They have a lot to contribute to the areas of development economics, broadly speaking, a lot to contribute to the study of weak and failed states, of foreign aid, of humanitarian disasters, uh, and also uh, this issue of the military in general. Uh, and it's precisely because uh, the focus on knowledge and incentives. I know, here's the thing, when you're embedded in this, like I have, so I got into this in my, as an undergrad. Pete Becky was my teacher. I went to graduate school here. So, you know, to me, talking about this stuff is second nature, but also it's like, okay, I got that. And I'm sure many of you, it's like, yep, we got that down. Guess what? Most people don't. They really don't. They really don't have it down, especially the Austrian points. If you go, like I remember two years ago speaking to the Government Accountability Office, and like government failure to them is like daily life. So you're like, hey guys, guess what? There's this thing called bureaucracy and there's these inefficiencies. And they're like, yeah, I know. I just came from my desk. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm the inefficiency. You're looking at me right now, right? So like to that, that's not a novel thing to them, right? What's novel is, the, is kind of the knowledge issue. It's like, what can you know and what, what limits to those places on what you can achieve? And so there's inroads to be had. They're hard inroads, but they're still inroads. And of course, the other thing I want to point out is that in some sense, none of the development stuff that I've said here, and last, the last time I did this talk here, I had it all based around this, but I wanted to cut some stuff out, um, is really novel to me. It's not just Mies and Hayek. It's an economist by the name of P.T. Bauer who taught at the London School of Economics. Uh, he wrote numerous books on development in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, and uh, he was great. Uh, I don't know if he considered himself an Austrian economist. I don't know if others, I really don't care. Uh, but what he did understand was the role of the market process of entrepreneurship uh, and that the move from subsistence to exchange fundamentally entailed letting people figure things out, experiment, engage in discovery. Uh, and you can go, and this, if you're interested in this from like a history of thought perspective, you should go and look up him and read the reviews of his books, both in academic journals and like The Economist. And that's when the rise of modern development economics starts, what I was talking about earlier. And people are ripping on him. They're ripping on him. And here's the things they say. This guy's a, a free market fundamentalist. He's dogmatic because he has words and he says markets work. But really where we are at development economics is that markets fail, we need central planning, and we need models. Right? We need models in order to model the economy so that we can fine tune and fix it. And over and over again, they just rip on him for that. Right? And really, if you look back, Everything he said is true. Everything from the failures of foreign aid to what development entails. And so Bill Easterly is great. I like him. But in some sense, he's just, in my view, Bill uh, P.T. Bauer with some more empirics edited. Right? It's the same kind of arguments over and over again. But they need repeating. They need updating. And they need application. And so with that, let me stop. Uh, and I think we go till uh, 6. So we have a few moments for Q&A. I appreciate the time to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, 
scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.